Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us for this episode of New Books in Philosophy. I'm Robert Talese. I'm professor of philosophy at Vanderbilt University. I co-host the program with Carrie Figder. Carrie is associate professor of philosophy at the University of Iowa. Today, my guest is Peter Ballant. Peter is senior lecturer and head of international and political studies at the University of New South Wales in Canberra. His new book, which is titled Respecting Toleration, Traditional Liberalism and Contemporary Diversity is published by Oxford University Press. Now, in his book, Peter defends toleration from several long-standing at this point philosophical criticisms, deriving not from advocates of intolerance so much as from theorists who hold that familiar liberal ideals and practices of toleration are insufficient for dealing properly with political and social and moral diversity. Now, there's a lot to talk about, uh, but why don't we begin uh, where we usually do, which is by greeting our guest. Hello, Peter. Hi, Bob. Thanks for having me. Well, thank you for joining us uh, on New Books in Philosophy today, and thank you for writing uh, such a wonderful book. Um, Why don't you start us off uh, by telling us uh, a little bit about yourself and how you came to this project? Thanks. Thanks, Bob. Um, as you mentioned, I'm a political philosopher based in Australia, uh, actually in Canberra. And I guess I came to this book partly from the side. I mean, it's been an I- interest of mine prior to coming into the academy. So uh, in one of the gaps in my academic career, I, I was a teacher at uh, TAFE, which is like alternative high school. And I got to see sort of multicultural practice in action and also having to teach some kind of multicultural educational policy. And it was there that I kind of had this strange disjuncture about what was going on and what were people being told to do and how they actually were in practice. And then when I decided to embark on this sort of a project, started to look at the questions of toleration and questions of multiculturalism, I was really taken aback, and this is something that you took up in your introduction, by uh, the baggage that toleration had. To me, it just seemed like toleration. Why not? It sounds great. Um, But the number of people who told me you can't use the term toleration, it's disparaging, it's problematic for all these reasons, uh, really surprised me. And I guess the the sort of itch I was trying to scratch in in this project, which is culminated in the book, was making sense of this concept of toleration and understanding about how people could quite simply live their lives if they wanted to live um, as long as they weren't harming others. Right. Excellent. So um, that's uh, it's it, it is interesting, I should say, just b- before we get to, to talk about the nuts and bolts of the book, that um, so much of the site of uh, the um, contemporary political, theoretic, political, philosophical uh, discourses about toleration do have as, as their site sort of schools, right? I mean, this is one Absolutely. of the places where the issues sort of, uh, get get raised, right? Absolutely. Um, so th- that's uh, th- that that strikes me then as a as a pretty um, natural or organic uh, 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 
launching point uh, from which to get into the issues. Yes. So why don't we then um, uh, sort of pick up with uh, with with, with uh, what you were just articulating, which is um, and in fact where the book starts. Um, so the book, uh, as you describe it, uh, very early, is a defense, as you put it, as of the ideal and practice of political toleration. Now, um, I suspect it won't be a surprise to all listeners, um, particularly it won't be a surprise to the listeners who uh, have followed the um, uh, debates uh, in multicultural political philosophy uh, for the past 20 years. Um, but it might be a surprise to some listeners who aren't, uh, in, you know, who haven't been following those debates to find that um, toleration stands in need of a defense. Um, so why don't we begin there? Um, what have philosophers been saying uh, in critique of toleration? Well, they've been saying quite a bit, actually, and, and they haven't been, and it's certainly not from one camp, it's from several different directions that toleration has been critiqued. So there are those uh, liberal multiculturalists and multiculturalists as, in general who think that toleration and its cognate neutrality is not the best way to deal with issues of diversity, to, to, to deal with issues of minority inclusion. Um, they think that it, it's... Uh, it, it, it generally favours the status quo and uh, doesn't lead to sort of fair recognition and fair inclusion of minorities. Um, there are those two uh, in from sort of critical theory school primarily, but not only, and, and, and in sociology, who, who see toleration as despotic, as actually being a despotism. They, they see toleration uh, because it involves, uh, on their view, objection to something, uh, the power to hinder somebody on the basis of this objection and the withholding of this power uh, as being problematic. I mean, yes, it's great they withhold the power, but as, as these people say, who would want to be tolerated? Who would want to be objected to by someone who had the power to interfere in their way of life? Um, there's also those uh, liberal neutralists, liberal neutralist political philosophers who don't necessarily buy any of the previous two challenges, but who think that Toleration has been superseded. It no longer makes sense as a political ideal. Yes, it might have made sense when we had a king who had a particular religion tolerating uh, the various competing religions of his or her subjects, most likely his. But these <laughs> days, <laughs> um, when we have uh, a liberal neutral state, the liberal neutral state has no value, according to these people, uh, in relation to its citizens' diverse ways of life. If it has no value, it's indifferent, it's neutral about its citizens' ways of life, then it cannot be conceptually tolerant. It has nothing that it can object to. So yes, it has the power to interfere. Yes, uh, it withholds this power, but it can't be tolerant because it no longer has this objection on which it can ground its toleration. Oh, I see. So, the, so on, on that third kind of critique, the very idea of a liberal neutralist state being tolerant is a kind of, um, is kind of incoherent, right? That toleration involves adopting the kind of commitment that state neutrality would um, preclude. Absolutely. That's absolutely it. It, it. it doesn't make sense. It's a nonsensical thing to call a liberal neutral state tolerant uh, okay. because it doesn't yet. So let me just, good, good. Let me just see if I've, if, if, if I've got it uh, worked out. So, um, uh, on the the first way in which um, 
uh, anti-tolerationist views run, uh, which is the multiculturalist way, which I, I suppose there are some uh, of philosophers who otherwise might count as liberal political philosophers who hold this line. Toleration is just a... Uh, um, uh, a suboptimal or bad or positively uh, uh, counterproductive um, uh, way of addressing human diversity. Um, on the the second kind of critique, um, which is the, the one you associated with the sort of critical theoretic uh, school, um, toleration is itself uh, kind of tyrannical. That <laughs> yes, <laughs> that, yes. Oh, I see. So it's that insofar as you're tolerating, you are all the more sort of affirming your um, superior social position relative to the tolerated. Absolutely. So it's got the power differential, but on top of the power differential is you have this objection. So, you know, nobody wants to be, as the position is, no one wants to be in a position, no one should want to be in a position where not only does people develop, others have power over them and can hinder them in significant parts of their life, but these people have an objection to who these people actually are. Right, That's right, right. Yeah. And, and I guess that you're reminding me of a, a, a many, many years ago reading a Marcuse essay on this. Um, yes, so, yes, yeah, yeah, yes. the repressive tolerance. He definitely tolerance. fits into that camp, yes. That's right, 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 where um, the, the, not only is, is, is there something tyrannical about toleration, but it also has a kind of... Um, uh, one of the features of it is that it, it, it gives the socially powerful um, uh, the excuse to pat themselves on the back morally, right? They can Absolutely. feel feel good about their you know their their superior social standing because after all, look at how tolerant they're being. <laughs> Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> uh, well, those are uh, those are some pretty formidable. Uh, uh, well, those two are pretty formidable challenges. Um, mm. The third, of, as, as as we said, was the, the just the conceptual uh, worries about mm. liberal neutrality. Could you tell just fill in a little bit more about the story about the the reason why the multiculturalist challenge to toleration? Um, wh why is it that the multiculturalists think that toleration is not an appropriate way of dealing with diversity? Is it because toleration is also uh, assimilationist or how exactly does that, that does that argument that that first challenge run? Well, I mean, it, it basically runs that traditional liberalism with its ideals of toleration, with its ideals of neutrality has failed to accommodate diversity. It's generally ended up meaning that the status quo, the majority has been privileged and the minority ways of life have, have been disadvantaged, uh, misrecognised, uh, made more difficult, um, insert particular multicultural theory here. Um, and so the idea is that this type of toleration where one, where the state simply, uh, particularly in the form of each other, the state simply stands back, what's commonly been called benign neglect, where the state simply stands back uh, and, and uh, allows people to live their lives as ever they can live under that situation, um, ends up favouring the status quo, ends up favouring the majority, and that something much more positive is needed under the multicultural theory. So something much more positive is needed to include those whose ways of life are different. So this is where the multiculturalist will argue for it, and in some ways the, uh, the critical theorists will agree with them here, will, will argue for forms of recognition, positive recognition of difference, whether they're differentiated rights of some kind, whether they're exemptions, whether they're symbolic recognition. So that the state needs to be more active uh, than is considered under the, this understanding of neutrality 
and toleration, the state needs to step forward and actually recognise people's ways of life um, for them to be fully included. Great. That's for their well. That's very helpful because um, it, it started, as we were just talking, it started to sound to me like um, uh, that the, 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 first and t- the, the first and second challenges have, a, have quite a bit in common then, in a way. That, Absolutely. Um, these are, toleration is, a, um, is either a, a kind of guise or a, um, a permission to, uh, to um, not give... Uh, um, uh, social, you know, not give certain diverse uh, segments of the community their due. Absolutely. Good, good, good. Absolutely. Great. So those are formidable challenges. Um, but uh, your book is a, is, is a defense of um, uh, what I, I, I take it will, uh, to some listeners and, and, and to some readers of your book, uh, be sort of uh, a garden variety liberal neutralist toleration. Um, and um, uh, the view that you defend uh, uh, on behalf of the liberal neutralists is a view that has at its core a conceptual distinction or a, a certain conceptual move between um, uh, two um, attitudes or practices or dispositions. Uh, it's unclear what the right word is here. Uh, one is uh, toleration, which you mm-hmm. think is a general permissiveness, and tolerance, which you think is a form of forbearance. Can you run us through the distinction and, 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 and help us to sort of get our mind around why it's such a central one? Absolutely. And just let me just clarify one thing out of our, the previous point, which is that in the book I don't disparage at all the critiques that are made by multiculturalists or even many critical theorists. I think they're onto something. I think that the liberal state has, under its previous guises, often been not very hospitable to minorities. And I guess my point isn't that they're wrong about that, but that the solution itself lies in toleration neutrality. So conceptually, they can do the work. So it's not like there are others in this debate who say, well, you know, that's just a concern that that you shouldn't have, that the liberal state is accommodating enough as it is. Um, This is, you know, Brian Barry uses the phrase, (laughs) this is the way we do things around here. You know, just basically just get over it. I don't have that concern. I think there's something, there's a lot to be said for particularly the multicultural challenge about people do have trouble living their lives as they see fit. The, the majority is privileged, and this is a problem. Um, it's just that I see that toleration, and as I'll say probably later on, neutrality is the way of solving this problem rather than the cause of the problem in the first place. Right. That's that's a very important point. I mean, to, to, hey, you know, to the folks who are listening who don't know yeah. the Brian Barry book, <laughs> um, it is... Uh, is bombastic a, fi- a fair term to describe uh, I, I the book? I think it's reasonable, yes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the book is titled Culture and Equality, and I, I remember reading it when it came out and, and in, a, in, a, in a kind of perverse way being thrilled by how uh, just overtly hostile <laughs> uh, it's certainly It's it certainly was. an entertaining read in that respect, yes. yes. Um, but yeah, so, so good. It's important that, that the, the, the argument of, of, of your book, Respecting Toleration, is not the Brian Barry argument, which is, um, uh, to, to, to put it uh, maybe not t- too simplistically, that uh, multiculturalist arguments are, are, are all crummy and there's really no issue uh, that's being raised uh, about um, uh, multiculturalism and inclusion of minority cultures. Uh, you, you want to say that um, properly understood, um, a familiar 
version of uh, liberal neutrality is sufficient to satisfy and to meet the challenge, uh, you know, what's legitimate in the multicultural and critical theoretic challenges. Absolutely, absolutely. The, the, the toleration neutrality can 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 definitely meet this challenge. But That's the question you asked me before was about my, the, this conceptual distinction. So perhaps right. would you like me to answer that? Yeah, yeah. Let's move on. Yeah, yeah. Why don't you yeah, okay. Tell so us about that? Um, I guess as you mentioned before, there's a kind of main conceptual distinction that, that drives the book, um, and I think dissolves quite a few of the challenges and at least allows us to make sense of what's going on. And this is the distinction between two senses of toleration. Um, the one sense is the sense that we've talked about already, which is this, uh, let's say, orthodox sense where to be tolerant is to have an objection, uh, to have the power to act on that objection, um, and to withhold the power, intentionally withhold the power to act on this objection. So that's a sort of example here would be something like a uh, university professor uh, taking a class and having a student come late to class. The, the, the professor uh, is... Uh, doesn't like lateness, uh, but decides not to intervene in this case, for example, by, you know, saying, get out of my class, you're late, uh, for some other reason. Perhaps they think, well, you know, I, I, I should really, perhaps this person was late for the bus and I shouldn't take their, I, sh- I shouldn't simply impose my view immediately. And this is sort of what we'd call a tolerant act in this, what I call in the book, a specific sense, a specifically tolerant act, and it has these three features of objection, power, and intentional non-hindrance. That, however, isn't the only sense of toleration that's in play when we're talking about political toleration. There's a second sense, and the second sense isn't one that I've just sort of invented out of thin air. It's a second sense that we use in common language that's been consistently used in earlier political philosophy discussions of toleration. It's present in Locke, it's present in Bale, it's present in Williams, um, it's present in the histories, the key histories of toleration. And John Stuart Mill. And John Stuart Mill. And John Stuart Mill as well, absolutely. So it's just this second sense, for some reason, has dropped out of contemporary philosophical discussions of, of toleration, and they've only focused on this specific sense, the one that where objection must be present. This second sense, which I, which I call a general sense of toleration, matches on to how we would describe a society, a state, or a university as being particularly tolerant. So when we describe, uh, let's say, Sweden as being a particularly tolerant society, we do not mean that there are lots of people walking around who have lots of objections and somehow or other they don't end up acting on them in that society. We mean instead that people who have the power to hinder others fellow citizens, uh, members of the government, the state in different ways, don't have these objections. Normally, they don't have objections. They don't act on them. Most of the time, they're actually indifferent to the various ways of life they come across. And it's this general notion of toleration, which I think comes prior, this notion that's prior, and that the notion of the specific sense of toleration, what in the book I call forbearance tolerance, which is basically uh, tolerance with objection, uh, is only one instantiation of it. But both, if you like, lead to the accommodation of diversity. Right. So could, could you say a little bit more, um, though, about the indifference? Because um, I take it that indifference can come in different, um, different grades, right? There could be um, indifference that's a result of just, you know, my not being aware of, you know, w- what goes on, <laughs> you know, uh, uh, you know in, in, in other parts of the university or in other parts of my city. There could be, I guess, a case of indifference where um, I'm fully aware of um, 
uh, unfamiliar. I'm, I'm fully aware of of alien and, or the strangeness of practices or, or or values that other people are engaged in, and it simply doesn't strike me as the kind of thing that is an appropriate target of moral attitudes. Would both of those count as indifference on this view? I, I mean, I think in many ways they would. Um, in, in many ways, they both would count. I'm using indifference in a broad possible sense. I mean, I do at times narrow it down to a more principled position. Um, but I think when it comes to, particularly when it comes to tolerant citizens, I'm using it in a broad possible sense. The fact that people can accommodate ways of life and, is, and not hinder them, um, either because of a principled reason, uh, saying, you know, everything within this particular range we think isn't an issue for, let's say, a university to be involved in, if it's a tolerant university, or it could be simply accommodated because it's something they don't really they don't really mind. They're like, I don't really mind what people do in this particular way. So when we're talking about indifference, I am talking about indifference in both senses, at least at this general stage. Right, right. I see. So, and is there a distinction then also to be made between the general and the particular conception? Right, the general being this permissiveness at the level of uh, uh, um, uh, that doesn't involve or doesn't require any. Uh, objection or, 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 or negative attitude and mm-hmm. the more particular, the forbearance, does that map on to any distinction? Does that help us track any distinction between um, the, 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 the ways in which toleration uh, functions both at the societal level or the level of the state and in the in the individual level, it seems that there's a, the, it might be a distinction worth drawing between individual attitudes that are, that are attitudes that count as tolerant and the state uh, stance or adopting a, a standpoint, as it were, of toleration. Does that help track that or, um, or not? It, it, it does in the sense that um, it's, it's hard, it, it doesn't make much sense to say the state has attitudes. So right, having right. an attitude in a form of... Uh, understanding here is a problem. Um, so what I say here, following on from Sunil Lagarde's work, is that uh, the state, if we're talking about relationships of tolerance, uh, relationships of toleration, where, where the elements of, are there, but they're not in the form of attitudes, they're form, in the form of relations. When it comes to individual citizens, though, I think relations don't make much, it makes more sense to talk about attitudes, that, that, that people have an attitude of tolerance or an attitude of respect or an attitude of indifference. I think there it makes more sense. All right, great. So let's. Um, so we've already, um, uh, both of us, at, at various points of what we've been saying so far, have sort of asserted this this sort of connection between um, toleration uh, and uh, liberal neutrality, or, or sort of neutralism uh, from the point of view of the liberal state. Um, could could you tell us a little bit? Just fill in. A, I mean, again, for the political philosophers who will be listening, this is going to be sort of bread and butter talk of the you know the stuff that political philosophy is made of. Uh, but um, could could you tell us a little bit about the, the the doctrine of liberal neutrality and how it connects up with the issues uh, about toleration? Yeah. So the, this general position of God on toleration um, allows, roughly speaking, three different ways for the accommodation of diversity. So there's three different ways that. Uh, diverse ways of life can be accommodated. But one of them is through this forbearance tolerance where there's an objection. Another one is through forms of respect for difference where uh, one can be generally tolerant but can actually end up respecting and recognising forms of difference. That's a kind of multiculturalist argument. Um, and then there's this third which I think is the ma- descriptively is the main way. This is through indifference, uh, what is roughly understood as neutrality. But also in, in the book, I think this is where you're, you're, you're pointing, is, um, is my main normative argument. And my main normative argument that neutrality 
at least from the state, is the best way of accommodating the broadest range of differences. So it's here, once again, that I'm defending um, a traditional liberal account, what I see as traditional liberal account, in forms of contemporary diversity, but in defending it, um, it obviously needs a little bit of reworking. Right. So, um, so sort of the connection then between toleration and neutrality is, I, I guess, then at the level of the more general uh, uh, conception, yes, right? Yes, absolutely, absolutely. So it's definitely at the level of the more general that the, the more general understanding of toleration allows for a neutral approach to uh, to issues of diversity. That's one way that that uh, diff- differing ways of life can be accommodated. Um, it might also be worth, worth pointing out at this point that uh, conceptually, and remember we talked about the third conceptual challenge, um, right. that neutrality and toleration in both its senses is compatible. Remember I mentioned before that neutrality and toleration aren't compatible. That was the challenge that was made and that contemporary states uh, were either neutral or they were, uh, or they were tolerant. Uh, they weren't both. Um, so, so here my, my argument is that even this forbearance understanding of toleration, even this forbearance understanding which has objection, is still going to make sense within a liberal neutral state. It's still going to make sense for a liberal neutral state to have to forbear particular ways of life. So uh, liberal neutral states aren't, and this is the mistake I think with this neutralist account, aren't neutral about absolutely everything. They're neutral amongst a range of ways of life, usually justice respecting ways of life. This leaves a whole bunch of things outside this range, some which will be subject to intolerance because they want to definitely harm others, and others which are kind of going to be subject to forbearance tolerance because while they... Uh, are outside the sort of range of justice, but say for that particular state, um, they're not going to be sufficiently powerful to harm anyone. And so, for, for example, for reasons of conscience or freedom of association, uh, it may be right to not uh, not hinder these particular ways of life. So the example I, I have in the book is something like uh, Aryan Circle in the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a it's a group that clearly don't believe in the equal moral worth of citizens. Uh, clearly want to uh, bring that about, uh, ways where these uh, other citizens are, are discriminated against, um, but perhaps because of freedom of conscience grounds, uh, it shouldn't be interfered with. So this is something that a neutral state can handle, and they'll need to be tolerant uh, in these particular ways. So in this sense, toleration in, in the orthodox sense of objection type is compatible uh, with liberal neutrality. Right, and I guess that, that, that does that follow if you think that one of the um, one of the faces of of toleration, if it's indifference, then it looks as if indifference is neither the um, uh, the approval nor the disapproval, right? I mean, I get I take it that that's where the the third critique of of, of toleration comes from is that toleration mm. is always some kind of or intrinsically tied to some kind of moral evaluation of its of its target but if toleration can be something that's just indifference then uh, it looks as if it's consistent with having no particular morally valent attitude at all right absolutely and this is this general this general understanding of toleration the one where objection doesn't have to be present um yeah it's entirely consistent with not having an objection towards uh, the object of, of toleration so when one's being generally tolerant examples like gave of sweden etc one doesn't have um, an objection to those particular ways of life. And I guess going back once again to the challenges, this evaporates some of, if not all of, this despotism challenge, the idea that uh, toleration 
has to involve a negative value. In this sense, it doesn't have to. It can, but it doesn't have to. So to say we live in a tolerant society doesn't mean a bad society at all. It might be a society where there's very little objection going on. Right, right, right. Excellent. So, why don't we move then to the um, uh, uh, to the the discussion that you have, particularly of the of the more particular uh, 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 forbearance tolerance uh, uh, account, which is where you also get into um, talking more about um, the uh, the attitudes of citizens. Um, so, I take it that the the forbearance tolerance is 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 the kind of or the face of tolerance that does involve objection, power to interfere, and uh, the the intentional non hindrance. Um, uh, you you promote um, what you describe as a non moralized or. Uh, in, in another part uh, of the chapter in which this is discussed, you describe it as a as, as a descriptive account of right. uh, forbearance tolerance. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what what you mean by calling it non non moralized or descriptive? And then I, I want to hear more about why you think that's preferable to uh, the moralized uh, uh, a version of the attitude. Okay, so this is a something that really struck me when I when I read more and more in, in this field, that um, discussions of tolerance in political philosophy, at least in recent years, have become very much connected with discussions of tolerance in moral philosophy. And yes, they're related fields, and it makes sense that they've done that. But as I said earlier, this wasn't the case, uh, certainly, with early discussions in political philosophy of toleration, where people are interested in the political understanding of toleration and the political application of it. So in moral philosophy, the discussions of tolerance are very much about tolerance as a virtue. And there's very much a virtue approach to tolerance. It's, that's, that's the interest there. And it seems to me, or it seems very quickly to me, that this is going to be very problematic to want to apply a virtue, a strong moral virtue sense in, the, in, in a political domain. Well, so for especially when, for a neutralist, right? Especially for, especially for a neutralist, yes. Yeah, yes, if you're yes. a perfectionist, maybe, right? Yeah, but... but Look, and, 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 and those who, who discuss this find it very philosophically interesting. They, they, there's the terms, and papers even have these titles, things like the impossibility of tolerance, the difficulty of tolerance. They're not talking about the difficulty of tolerance in a political sense, which is the one that interests me, like it's really hard to not discriminate against someone when you have an objection against them. The about the difficulty is in, is in the conceptual difficulty of it making sense. Right, um, right. And this seemed to be taking us too far from what I saw as real political concerns. So... When we talk about, when I talk about moralized conceptions, what I mean here is that the reasons for objection and or the reasons for non-hindrance, the reasons for staying uh, interference are, are both moralized. So that's, that's the key thing here. So, for example, when it comes to objection, some people hold that the reasons for objection must be moral. They can't simply be aesthetic or, or, or gut reactions or disapproval of any kind. They need to be moral. So these sort of people would say that things like race, uh, issues of race can't be issues of tolerance. Racial tolerance doesn't make sense to them because one shouldn't object, uh, one shouldn't object to someone on the basis of, the, of something they can't change, like their skin colour. Um, so that's one type of moralisation, that moralisation that occurs to the reasons for objection. The second kind of moralization, which is more widespread, um, is moralization that occurs for the re to the reasons for not negatively interfering, for, for holding back power. So there's a bunch of different reasons that are given here. Probably the, the, the most widely accepted ones are the ones by someone like Rainer Forst, 
which are that one should have good normative reasons for staying uh, uh, interference. Um, what I say here, and this is the kind of more radical claim that I guess you're hinting at, is that I don't buy the need to actually have good normative reasons here either. I'm happy to accept prudential reasons. I'm happy to accept pragmatic reasons here uh, when it comes to staying negative interference. This then becomes an entirely descriptive account of forbearance tolerance. It's one where all one needs is an objection, um, the power to act on that objection, to, to hinder someone on someone the grounds of that objection, and then not doing so. Um, the reasons the reasons aren't, aren't to be examined. It's simply the fact of whether it happens or not. Um, so, obviously, one issue here might be: well, this just seems crazy. Tolerance is 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 is, is moral. You've taken it too far. What I suggest, though, is that this isn't. I haven't. Once again, this isn't something I've invented out of thin air. It's consistent with our with our usage of the term. We commonly use tolerance in situations where we mean that the person who's tolerating hasn't done the right thing. Um, what I suggest is that this understanding of forbearance tolerance is descriptive. It's a, we need a separate normative account of whether it's right or wrong. So we might talk about um, a state tolerating human rights abuses in another country when they have the power to do something about it. Perhaps they do it because they're scared of losing trade. We might talk about... Uh, the wrongness of, of, uh, of police tolerating domestic violence abuses in a particular place. Um, we use toleration in this sense, in this descriptive sense, um, in situations where the person who is tolerating has done the right thing and ones where they've done the wrong thing. So it's, what I'm trying to say here is that it should be, it makes sense to have an entirely descriptive account of the term. Good. Perfect. Can I just, not by way of actually raising an objection, but just giving mm. a little bit of pushback just to, to, uh, uh, to, to help highlight um, one of the features of a, of a non-moralized conception of forbearance tolerance. Um, and w one that you're willing to take on. I, you know, I think you might even uh, have this example in the book. Um, so, uh, a, so a racist who just sees that... Um, uh, he, that, that so a racist organization that sees that there's that they're too few, <laughs> right? Yeah, that, yeah. that they're they're not able to effectively, uh, uh, you know, intervene, or if, if it comes to having to fight, they're going to lose. Um, so they forbear, uh, uh, you know, um, uh, uh, you know, a, 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 you know, a social context where they have to uh, interact with. Uh, 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 a larger community of, of of persons who have the wrong skin color from their point of view. Um, sure, sure. That's going to count as toleration on this view, right? Absolutely, absolutely. It has to. I mean, that's 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 the implication that follows is that um, if people can tolerate, can withhold power for any reason, it can be for very very pragmatic reasons. Uh, to me, this this only sounds problematic if one thinks of tolerance as being always a good. And I don't think it's always a good. I think you need to have some other account of why it's good in some cases and not in other cases. I mean, in some senses, it's a pro tanto good in the sense that it allows freedom. Um, right. Not interfering allows people to do the thing that they were doing. And so most of the time you might want to say, well, this is a pro tanto good. It's mainly, it's mainly good. But it's not always going to be good. And I mean, often it's going to be the wrong thing to do, let people do freedom. And in fact, all things considered, we think people should have their freedom interfered with in particular cases. So right. in the sense that we think it's 
in the sense that there's still some residue of it being good, I think that's where it comes from. Right. I guess, though, that this is one of the, the places where, you know, this is not, um, you know, what I'm about to say is not a criticism of, of, of your view in particular. It's just a, a fact about philosophy when we have these mm. these terms that also play a role in virtue theoretic contexts. Yes. That it does sound like when you when you refer to somebody as tolerant, mm. um, there is a kind of um, attributing an admirable trait to the person. <laughs> right. There's that sense yes. of it that. um that this account of um, of tolerance in the non-virtue theoretic sense yeah. is bristling against here, I guess, right? That the, there's a way to be tolerant and yet in no way be be admirable from the virtue theoretic perspective. Absolutely. I mean, I guess I, I guess yeah, you're right. One of the problems is that we do use it in both ways. We do use this term in in, in sort of virtue theoretic ways and also in this descriptive way. But I guess. I would also push back that much of the time when we describe someone as being tolerant, we're describing them, not always, but a lot of the time in this general sense we talked about a few moments ago, in this general sense of uh, just being the sort of person that lets people live as they see fit, that stands back, that doesn't judge, uh, that doesn't interfere. So I think that, to me, seems closer to a kind of virtue than, than the idea of someone who uh, doesn't withhold the power to interfere. Right. So who does evolve how to interfere? Yeah. Right, 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 right. Good, good. So, and does this um, give a, a, a further um, line of defense for the uh, liberal tolerationist uh, against some of the challenges? Because now, uh, if there is some kind of social um, directive or requirement from the point of view of liberal democratic citizenship to be tolerant. Uh, if that is now understood as a non-moralized uh, uh, um, set of dispositions, then it looks like it's easier to evade the, the third challenge, right? Now it looks as if there's no moral directive coming, no problematically moral directive or non-neutrally moral directive coming from the state when it um, uh, identifies toleration as uh, one of the dispositions that's required for good citizenship. Would that be right? Absolutely. So yeah, there's nothing going to be there's nothing perfectionist in this understanding of of uh, tolerance, forbearance, tolerance. It's not a moral virtue. It's not perfectionist. So yes, you're right. The, the neutral estate can promote it because they're not promoting any particular way of life. They're effectively just promoting um, because they're promoting a particular context are, are some sort of respecting of rights of fellow citizens. They're not requiring you to do it for any particular reasons. All they're requiring is particular behaviour, uh, non-discrimination in particular cases. Yes, that's right. Excellent, excellent. So let's then. So one of the um, one of the, the critical maneuvers then that um, this account of uh, forbearance uh, opens up to you that you discuss um, is that you're, you're critical of the um, the association uh, of toleration or maybe the um, uh, the move to to call for something that goes beyond toleration, which is um, a positive respect for differences. Uh, you think that 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 that, that go, that's going too far. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about uh, uh, your critique of the the call for uh, a requirement for citizens to respect their differences? Yeah, good. Um, because basically, what I've said so far about the citizen is that there's this uh, political minimum that they must uh, tolerate each other's differences, tolerate in this forbearance sense, and tolerate also in this non-moralized sense. Um, so at this point, if we go back to the kind of challenges, this is looking to those, to many of those 
particularly the, those that have the despotic challenge, the tolerance is despotic, and particularly some, potentially some multiculturalists too, um, as being deeply problematic, as sort of re- coming back to all the things that they thought were terrible about uh, tolerance to begin with. So what I do, I, mean, I don't think this is the case, I think obviously that this understanding of tolerance is permissive, allows people to um, not interfere in each other's lives for their own reasons, and in this way, I think that's very permissive to allow people to not interfere in each other's lives for their own reasons. But these people will still potentially say, well, look, we need more than this. We need some account of respect. We need some account of respect because this is what makes a good society or at least makes a society in which more people are accommodated and more diversity is accommodated. Um, to be clear, where, where I would agree with them is if they mean respect of sameness, if they mean that each citizen should respect each other's citizenship or respect each other's personhood or respect each other's sameness in some way. Because this respect of sameness, um, if you like, gives the reason why, gives a reason, if you like, gives a reason why uh, citizens should tolerate each other. I mean, we need a reason to stay, uh, to stay interference. Well, if it's because you respect the other, the other citizen, here is a reason why one shouldn't interfere. Doesn't have to be the only reason, but it's but it could be a primary reason. I have no problem with this. Um, where there is a problem, though, is when when this form of respect starts to be about respect of difference, respecting the difference that that your fellow citizens have from you. And this this was once again to go back to our, our very early discussions. This was one of the things that motivated me early on in the project because this was exactly the sort of stuff that happens in educational institutions where it's all about learning and to appreciate and respect each other's differences. Um, it's also the sort of thing which has happened in, uh, in, in, in policy terms throughout the world and even in legislative terms. It's, uh, at least some reading of some Canadian legislation has this in, some reading of New South Wales, uh, the largest state in Australia, has this reading in as well. So it's not a kind of mere philosophical exercise to talk about uh, respective difference. My critique, though, I mean, there's an obvious critique and there's a kind of, there's the following critique. The, the, the obvious critique is that in many cases it's not going to be possible for citizens to respect each other's differences. If they really have differences, and they're not kind of mere differences, they're actual deep differences, i.e. they live in a diverse, a properly diverse society, um, then this is going to be very hard. I mean, the classic case that's often given here is something like, you know, the Catholic priest um, and the abortion activists. They're not going to respect each other's differences. They might respect each other's right to have different points of view, but that's not respecting the content of each other's differences. Um, but there's more to it here than just this. That There's the point that if, and I think the right aim, and a aim that I think we all agree on here, is about the greater accommodation of diversity, about more people and more ways of life being able to live their lives as they see fit or do or be who they want to be, um, then it's not clear that this kind of respect of difference is actually linked to accommodation, to this kind of accommodation. It's, it might be hoped that it's linked to accommodation, but I think in many ways it's not linked at all. Because um, it seems like it's quite possible to accommodate, as I've argued already, it's quite possible to accommodate difference without respecting it. It's quite possible to accommodate difference by being indifferent of it, or to, be, to accommodate difference by being tolerant of it, by forbearing in some sense. And it also seems that it's quite possible to respect a form of difference without accommodating it. So to give a kind of simple example would be, it's quite, it makes quite a lot of sense for someone to say, look, to a vegetarian uh, who they just had over for dinner that night, look, 
That's wonderful you're a vegetarian. I, I really respect your commitment. I think it's great that people follow their moral commitments. It's a, it's a wonderful thing. It's a really respect-worthy position you've taken here. But we're going to eat meat tonight. Um, it's, it's, it, there's no link here between many forms of respect, not all, but many forms of respect and accommodation. Um, and I think that one, if we're going to, if we're going to ask to respect each other's differences, then we need some account of how it's going to lead to increased accommodation, not less. And when we're encouraged, when we're merely encouraged to respect each other's differences, what's likely to happen is I'm going to go and respect the differences that I had no problem with in the first place. So I might well have been indifferent to a whole range of uh, ways of life in my neighbourhood, let's say. You know, let's say the local Brazilian restaurant on the corner, those people, or the uh, I, I might go and find out about the, 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 the Buddhist temple that's down the road. That's great. After learning about them, understanding them better, I may well come to respect them. You may say, wow, that's great. But my response here is, I wasn't intolerant to these people. I wasn't intolerant at all. I was indifferent. Um, you've now, firstly, it made it done a non-neutral thing, which has kind of encouraged me to do something with my time I wouldn't have done otherwise. And it doesn't seem to have been for any good reason. Um, I wasn't going to be intolerant to them anyway. Where this needs to take place is obviously in cases where there's intolerance, not where there's indifference. And these are much harder cases. Um, and I think here it's going to be much easier to meet these harder cases with asking for tolerance, with acknowledging that people disagree, acknowledging that they have deep value differences, but saying, look, um, don't act on them. Don't hinder at least on these, these people on the basis of this. This acknowledgement seems a lot better and it seems to place less social pressures on these particular people. It places less pressure on them to, to become more respecting and respectable, the kind of classic accentuate their cooking and dancing. <laughs> but, you know, I, I don't know whether in Australia there, well, I, I know that there are bumper stickers in Australia. I've seen them, but I don't know whether in Australia there is a bumper sticker that used to be um, more popular um, than it is now in the States, which is a bumper sticker that says, celebrate diversity. Um, yes. Which I... I, I I, I always, I always heard or, or, or read that um, directive as um, not a, not contradictory, but at, at least a um, uh, at, at least troubled. Uh, I thought, whoa, what, wouldn't diversity also be a, a, a range of, of different attitudes towards diversity itself? <laughs> um, and so, you know, it, it, it looked, so this is making, making your, your, your point in a, in, a, in, a, in a more roundabout, less elegant way, of course. But um, that, you know, it, it looks to me like the respect differences winds up um, being unable to respect certain kinds of difference. Right. Because going back to your, your extreme kind of case, right, yeah. the, 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 the Catholic and the and the uh, the abortion activist, like what you might say, like what it is to recognize what the Catholic's commitment really is. <laughs> right. Absolutely. Is to be the kind of thing that can achieve uh, uh, can't achieve that kind of um uh, attitude or disposition towards the abortion activist, and to say, "Well, no, you've got to respect differences," is in effect to say you can't really hold that doctrine. Absolutely, and I think that's the kind of—it's almost. I mean, to use the political philosophy, it's almost a, a version of a very thick, comprehensive liberalism. And I think that's what worries me as a, as a, as a more traditional liberal. It's a kind of like you, your differences are fine as long as they're respecting and respectable, as long as they're within this narrow range. Beyond that narrow range, 
uh, you, there's a problem. There's a problem there because it's kind of this. So it's kind of, to me, it seems unnecessarily assimilatory. Um, because a lot of people who hold these values that, you know, good liberals, inverted commas, uh, are, are going to find difficult to respect, um, aren't necessarily going to act intolerantly. We shouldn't assume they're going to act intolerantly. A lot of the people, a lot of religious people, uh, every day come up against differences which they find deeply abhorrent and manage to get along with their lives and be part of society. So I think we shouldn't assume that these people, that people who have difficult differences, to use that term, are necessarily going to act intolerantly, and we shouldn't encourage, and encouraging them to be, come into the fold and be more respecting and respectable seems deeply unnecessary and to place quite serious social pressures on them. Right, right. Very good. So um, uh, you, you discuss towards the end of the book a couple of uh, sort of case studies that um, uh, you want to um, just just show some ways in which uh, your version of um, toleration and neutrality can, can help us make some headway. And particularly you talk about um, welfare distribution or sort of, sort of distributive justice issues and then um, national defense. Can you tell us a little bit about how, how, the, how the, the view works out in those kinds of cases? Oh, good. Yeah, I mean, perhaps one of the things I, I, I should stress that may not have come through so far is that, or probably has actually, um, that I have a view of a liberal neutral state, of a neutral state, a, a state that doesn't, uh, that doesn't uh, promote any one particular cultural view. Um, the the fact that it doesn't promote any, any it doesn't pr- promote any particular cultural view it doesn't have predict promote a majority culture then allows me to say there's no need for minority minority rights minorities to be respected so in cases where minorities come up and say look uh, you're being non-neutral you're you're privileging the status quo my response isn't okay. Well, we now need to neutralise the situation by granting rights or exemptions to the speaking minority. My response is, oh, the state should say, wouldn't say these words, something like, oh, thank you for pointing this out to us. We didn't realise. Um, let's remove this form of privilege, um, whether the privilege might be uh, the privilege given to, to, to marriage, the privilege given to uh, particular forms of uniforms, whatever it might be. So we end up with this strongly neutral state where every time it's realised that it's privileging a particular uh, way of life, you know, a, a, a majority or status quo one, um, it needs to stand back and um, be more accommodating, not only to that minority, but to all ways of life. So, it, 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 can, can, can I just can I just ask yeah. right there just one question because um, uh, that does seem, and, and just again to, to give a little bit of pushback, um, uh, does that move? Um, that struck me as a, a as as a kind of um, uh, granting uh, uh, granting one of the the, the the central Brian Barry moves, right? That is that uh, any good case for an accommodation is actually a case for just removing the policy or for altering the policy. Does that, or, or, or am I reading that wrong? No, I, I think in, in, in some sense that's correct. Um, in some sense it's correct that any, any good case for accommodation is, is a reason for granting the policy. I, I guess it's more radical than Barry in the sense that um, all that was required from me is that a neutral justification is met for that policy law or institution so it can be justified neutrally and once that's met any reason is a reason which can remove which can change it so people can people can be accommodated uh, for their mere preferences or their deeply held beliefs I see so so yeah. in the case of the uh, in the case of the police uniforms that are yeah. you know wildly unfashionable because the, the policy setting what they were is sometime in the 1980s yeah. somebody can come along and say 
you know, I just don't like, you know, I don't like to look square. You know, I want to wear fashionable clothes. Uh, and that would count as a reason to revisit the policy about the uniforms. Is that is that how it runs? Absolutely. Absolutely. That I, I, that would count as a reason to revisit the, 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 the policy of the uniforms. If if the policy of the uniforms can be met uh, and and meet this, um, this, this, this claim, if the neutral justification can still be met, then, then it should be met. Excellent. Excellent. OK, that 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 helps clear things up. So um, uh, do, do, would you like to talk about the about the the the, the wealth the wealth distribution? Yes, and the idea? absolutely. So so I guess in this part of the book, what I'm trying to do and, and I, I should say methodologically, my claim has been not that this understanding of neutrality and toleration is the only thing that matters. I say that that it matters a lot, um, but it can be outweighed. Um, but at least when it's outweighed, it still has value and it still, ha- it still is, uh, should, should be taken into consideration. And I'm wary towards the end that people are going to say, well, this year the neutral state is just high ideal theory. It's going to be swept aside in no time at all. Uh, thank you very much. We're going to ignore you. And what I want to say is, well, I don't think it's going to be swept aside so quickly. I think we should be cautious of sweeping it aside so quickly because the empirical evidence seems to suggest that uh, neutral states are actually functional and can function along some uh, commonly assumed lines. So there are a group of people that I assume many of the listeners will heard of called liberal nationalists who think that the state needs a common uh, common culture, which everyone can be part of, but which holds us all together, which is a, uh, this is the way we do things around here, but it's a way of doing things around here which hopefully everyone can integrate into. Um, and they're the kind of people I want to push back against. I want to push back against, and I use two examples, um, one, as you said, is welfare redistribution, um, where liberal nationalists, their common argument is, well, uh, for, for welfare redistribution is a matter of justice. Uh, because it's a matter of justice, it's, uh, it, it, it matters obviously a lot. Um, it can only be achieved with some sort of common culture where there's a sense of trust held amongst all citizens. Um, the, the second one is that, uh, is that of national defence, where... I sort of say, I'll, I'll, I'll take it further than the liberal nationalists and say, well, let's look at national defence. You might think what matters more, not only to, to, uh, to welfare liberals, but to all liberals, in fact, probably all people, that the highest role of the state seems to be, one of them seems to be the security, the, the security of the state, the defence of the state matters, and we need, we may well need to have a common national culture so people who go into battle and, and defend us do so, are motivated to do so, and, and, and do so with, with some sense of identification in mind. Without that... Uh, where it's simply being just a job, uh, this may not actually occur. And what I go through is to say, in both cases, these concerns are overstated. I mean, let me let me say perhaps more about the the national defence case because more is yeah. going to be on the welfare the welfare distribution case. Um, and the national defence case it really doesn't take long to actually examine the claim and realise the deep problems with it. I mean, we have lots of people in our society who make big sacrifices and clearly don't have national identification. We have nurses, firefighters, policemen, etc., um, who don't have national identification. Um, many, and, and then even if we look at the empirical evidence that's been done on soldiers' motivations to enlist, um, you discover that many people join the armed forces uh, for very self-serving reasons, to get an education because it's a good job, because it's exciting. Um, when they do have a sense of, of service, or, or, or a sense of um, what's commonly called institutional motivation, it's often a more general motivation than one that's related to uh, their national cultural identification. And I think 
you know, w- w- what really struck me here, uh, particularly because we have a in Australia we have what's called the cult of Anzac, so we have an Anzac sort of military identity has become quite strong in Australia, is that when whenever you have some hero on the battlefield uh, gets lauded for their uh, particular Victoria Cross, they're called here, um, you we 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 see they're often held up as you know, being a key part of the nation and doing it for their country. But when you read their actual battle accounts, you discover, well, they didn't do it for their country at all. They did it for their mates. It's all about team building and mateship, and they're motivated to take great risks on the battlefield, if we think this is important. I'm not saying it is, but if you think it's important, um, by nothing to do with national cultural identification, by simply do team building that occurs in military training. Um, and this seems to be a trend that you can find throughout the world. So this is sort of part of the scepticism about saying that a liberal neutral state won't function, I think it will. Um, and even, we can go further here, um, one can talk about uh, private military contractors have actually in recent years been very effective fighting units. Here you have a group which has nothing to do with national cultural identification. So I guess this is my way of saying, don't sweep aside the neutral state too quickly by saying it's not feasible, it's not practical. I think it is very feasible and very practical and here are a couple of objections which I hope to have overcome. Right. It should, it's worth noting, again, in, in the States, um, uh, I suspect this isn't true uh, in Australia, but in the States, there's a, a, a pretty steady marketing campaign on behalf of the armed forces uh, to get enrollees. You watch, you can see on television, yeah. billboards and radio and things. And um, although there is always an element of, you know, doing your duty and patriotism and uh, and, and the rest, a lot of that advertising is aimed at, you know, getting training, getting a job after you get out, getting money for school. Um, that a lot of the, what's being appealed to isn't is 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 always running alongside. You know, the patriotism always runs alongside some other set of benefits that uh, that accrue to somebody who enlists. Absolutely, which I mean, is, which yeah. is interesting. <laughs> it's interesting. I mean, and you know, advertisers and marketers are, are, are good sources of truth in these ways. I mean, they, they, they'll, they'll do what works, and this is a good way of seeing, <laughs> seeing, seeing really showing what works. We have the same here. We have we have uh, our military uh, advertising is is full of uh, self interested reasons. Well, it's, I don't know whether that's a good place to stop or a bleak place to stop or, or, or whatever, but uh, uh, you, you've been, Peter, you've, you've been very generous with your time, which I very much appreciate, um, and uh, it, was, it, was, it was great to, uh, to talk to you uh, uh, about, about the book. So, th- first of all, thank you for your time today. Oh, no, my, my pleasure. It's been very interesting. And uh, thank you, listeners, for joining us for our discussion of, uh, of, uh, of Peter Ballant's book. Uh, remember, uh, the, the title of the book is Respecting Toleration. Its subtitle is Traditional Liberalism and Contemporary Diversity. The book is published by Oxford University Press. Uh, thank you for listening to New Books in Philosophy, and bye for now.